Well, good morning, everyone. Yeah, some of you are surprised, as surprised to be here as I am. You left your home and you thought, oh, it's slick outside, right? As I slid through the stop sign in my neighborhood going four miles an hour, I thought, oh, <laughs> uh, maybe I don't make it, but, but I did. And we're here and uh, thankful for technology this morning. Uh, thankful for y'all being here. Thankful for you at home uh, this morning. Glad to be with you. So uh, we are continuing our series called The Ransom. And um, in light of that, uh, this is our third week doing so, Luke 22 and 23. I think my two favorite chapters so far in the book of Luke. So uh, let us get started. Could you guys turn the lights up? So I can see people. Thank you. Uh, you may remember this film. In 1939, a film was made that is now deemed a classic. One movie critic called it one of the greatest, if not the greatest, film of all time. It included a young girl from Kansas named Dorothy. So I want you to name that film. Thank you. Uh, you are correct. And I think it originally started out black and white, then they added color later on. I remember as a kid being mesmerized by that film. Remember the flying monkeys? Oh, my. At eight or nine years old, that's terrifying. As Dorothy, Toto, her dog, the Tin Man, and the Scarecrow are following the yellow brick road, heading to the Emerald City to have a conversation with the Wizard of Oz himself, they were very afraid. They were going through the dense forest, and they begin to say over and over, lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Lions and tigers and bears. And then the lion actually jumped out, but he didn't, he didn't turn out to be too ferocious, did he? He was looking some courage. As I read... Obviously, their journey was filled with angst and dread and unknown. And as I thought about our text this morning in Luke 22, 39 through 62, what jumps off the page to me in these three well-known New Testament scenes were prayer, perfidy, and pride. Now, you don't know what perfidy is, but it's meant to help you remember the three Ps. It's just a synonym for betrayal, prayer, betrayal, and pride Oh, my. These scriptures are filled this morning with angst and dread and the seemingly unknown. Except it's not make-believe. What we're going to talk about this morning is real. It happened. And we'll see that God's eternal plan to make his son bear the wrath for sin is moving forward quickly. And it's moving forward exactly as he said it would. So read with me the first part of our text this morning. I'll read each section as we teach through it, starting in Luke 22, verse 39 to 46. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup 
from me, this cup of wrath. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Our first point this morning is for us to take a look at what I have titled faithfulness via prayer. So the first thing we see in verse 39 are the words, and he came out. So we're studying our Bible and we see, for he came out. And the first question we ask is what? He came out from where? Great question. He came out from the upper room, if we look back in context at the previous verses. And that's where we saw last week that Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper, a new memorial, a way to remember not God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt, but his new deliverance of sinners from judgment. Remember, this is late Thursday night or after midnight, early Friday morning. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, he must die on this Friday between 3 p.m. and sunset while the Jewish Passover lambs are being slaughtered. Because Jesus is our, is the forever Passover lamb that if you are covered in his blood, God's wrath or God's judgment will pass over you. So while in the upper room, that's where Jesus came out from. He came out from the upper room. Let's go back and revisit the upper room. It's so important here. While in the upper room, Jesus gave the disciples commands to obey, warnings to heed, and promises to trust. On this icy, snowy Sunday, four great chapters, five great chapters for you to read today is John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. But we see those promises, warnings, and commands in John 13, 16. And then he prayed what is known as the great high priestly prayer seen in John 17. And here's what he covered here, just a summary. He covered the hour of his death. He said, has come, therefore glorify your son, Father, so your son may glorify you. He's praying to his Father. God gave Jesus the authority to give eternal life to everyone that the Father gave him. He defined eternal life. Those that know the Son, and he, Jesus tells us, accomplish all the work his Father gave him to do. Every single thing. It tells us Jesus existed with God, the Father, before the world existed. He continues to pray. We come to know Jesus through the very words of God. Jesus is praying for those who know him. And he's also praying unity among those who know him. Jesus guards the salvation of all who know him, eternal security. And then Jesus prayed to the Father that he would sanctify and mature his children, his people through his word. And lastly, he's not only praying for those that know him there, but he's praying for all the folks like me and you who throughout thousands of years that would come to know him after that. It's amazing. And I ask this question, 
you may be thinking this question. Why in the world would Jeff summarize the great high priestly prayer when he's teaching on Luke 22, verses 39 through 62? It is a great question, but here's the reason. The reason is verse 39 says, and he came out, yeah, right in front of his disciples, right before he came out of the upper room, he laid open his chest. He laid open his heart with transparency, times transparency, times transparency, and he modeled to them. He showed them this intimacy with the Father that they had never seen. He allowed his men to see and hear and experience this intimacy by prayer. What it looks like for the Son and the Father to communicate through prayer. This was a holy moment, folks. This was hallowed ground. And his men, the disciples, got to participate in it. They got to see it. They got to experience it. It is a wow moment. Some scholars have written is maybe the most profound 650 words ever recorded in all of history. I want you to just stick that right there in your mind and hold on to it. Put it between your teeth. And just hold on to it so we can grab it again. So we go back to verse 39. So they go to the Mount of Olives after they came out from the upper room where they always go. Verse 40, it says, the place, the place is the Garden of Gethsemane. Say it with me. Thank you. And he tells them to pray that you may not enter into temptation. Stay with me here. Jesus had just given. Think about that. The greatest crash course, the greatest modeling of prayer ever given. And he's thinking, just start doing what you saw me do. It doesn't have to be perfect. But in light of you seeing me just pray the great high priestly prayer with such transparency and intimacy with the Father, in light of you living with me 24-7, in light of me teaching you how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, in light of you doing life with me, for the love of God, pray something. <laughs> pray, he tells them. And it says Jesus goes to pray. And when he is done, look at verse 45. He says, he found his men sleeping for sorrow. We'll unpack that in a minute. But I need to see, I think, this morning, and you need to see exactly why they and us unnecessarily fall into temptation, why we unnecessarily walk in disobedience as they did, and why we unnecessarily, as they did, live independent lives from Christ. This text is a classic text that tells you and I that prayer is foundational for our walks with Christ. First, temptation. Look at verse 40 and 41. I ask this question. If Jesus, the perfect God-man, needs to pray in order not to fall in temptation... How much more do we, where the power of sin is intertwined in our being, where we have these unholy impulses that pound us daily? And you and I know if we're thinking rightly about ourselves in light of what the scriptures tell us, we know 
that sin is crouching at our doors. There is a daily spiritual fight against our own fallenness. Yes, we need to pray not to fall into temptation. The context here of this command to pray from Jesus to his disciples is Jesus had just told him, as Monty talked about, yes, he told Peter, Satan's going to sift you, but he was speaking corporately to all of them, the text tells us, that Satan is going to sift you like wheat, meaning Satan is trying to bring about your defection, that you would hit eject on following Jesus. And prayer is what will give them the strength to remain faithful and to persevere. This communion with God. So it is fighting temptation. Secondly, secondly, prayer is foundational to our own obedience. Verses 42 through 43. In verse 41, Jesus, it is, Luke told us that Jesus is now alone. The scriptures speak of Jesus in many places as the man of sorrows. As Isaiah says, he is fully acquainted with grief. And now he is alone in that grief. He is alone in that agony. Matthew 26 says he fell on his face at this moment. Hebrews 5, 7 said he fell to the ground and prayed with strong crying and tears. This man of sorrow is at his most sorrowful moment. Why is that? The coming wrath. From his own father. And in that coming, for the first time in all of eternity, he will be separated relationally, intimately from his father. This is far less about the physical, brutal beating that he's going to take, although that's a part of it. Folks, this is about the separation from God the Father to God the Son because the wrath of God is going to be poured on Christ. One writer said, it is more than he can bear in his God-man makeup. Matthew 26 says, my soul is very sorrowful. In this Matthew 26 and Mark 14 and John 18 are our parallel passages here. So Matthew 26 says, my soul is very sorrowful. Pray and watch with me, he tells his men. Verse 42 of our passage, Father, take this cup from me, this cup of wrath from me, if you are willing, but not my will, but yours be done. Look, what a great, let me pause here. What a great way to pray. Lord, I desire this, but I want what you want more than what I want, even if I say that by faith. Remove this cup of wrath that I'm about to drink so we will not be separated. But even more than that, even more than that, I want to obey you. One writer translated it this way. If it is necessary, it is necessary. But if there's another way, there's not another way. Prayer, no doubt, is foundation to Jesus and us obeying God, even as we are tormented, tormented and tempted to do what we want to do. But I want you to notice, did you notice as I read 
the supernatural arrival of angelic aid. God the Father sent an angel from heaven to strengthen him, a tangible reminder of all that God the Father has promised. So now the one who is worshipped by angels is now strengthened by those same angels. Dr. Bach says God stands beside the one who suffers according to his will. Jesus will not suffer alone. I thought for you, for me, as we suffer, we do not suffer alone. God's spirit is with us. His presence is with us. He sees us in our suffering. And then I love dependence, verse 44. Dr. Luke makes it clear that the emotional and physical trauma was taking place as the intensity of Jesus' prayers increased. This agony, torment, and anguish was so great that it caused a physical reaction. The, the, the literal torture of letting go of his father relationally and embracing knowing that the full wrath of every sin that was ever committed and would ever be committed was going to be poured onto him made him sweat drops of blood. I actually did a little research. It's called, this phenomenon is called, caused, it's called, it is a rare uh, thing, but it's a serious condition called hematidrosis. Leonardo da Vinci wrote about soldiers sweating blood before battle because of the stress that their body was producing. It's a rupture of capillaries where the body is under incredible anxiety and stress. Notice the phrase, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. When the emotional pain increased, what did Jesus do? Go to sleep? Curl up? Veg out with some TV? Have a nice stiff drink? No, no, no. He leaned in to God. When the truth of what was about to take place hit him clearly. His disposition was toward God, not away from God. He leaned into God. I need you, Father. Help me, Father. Many times, folks, you know this is true, and I know it's true about me. When the pain increases, when things are heating up in my life, my natural bent is to shut it down and vanish spiritually. Come on. That's exactly what the disciples did. Speaking of the disciples, let me finish this first point. We need to look at this contrast of the disciples. The way Jesus prayed and the way they prayed, and it's a contrast of detachment and self-reliance, verses 45 and 46. Jesus had just gone through the valley of the shadow of death, this holistic tormenting gauntlet, if you would. His clothes are soaked with his own blood, and what happens? He returns to find his men who were to be beckoning God on his behalf and theirs, who he had commanded to pray. He had pleaded with them to pray. And he returns 
and he finds them asleep. Sleeping from sorrow, which maybe when we would first read that, we would feel sorry for them. Maybe we first read that, we would say, oh, bless their hearts. They're just, they're just so brokenhearted. They just needed a nap. Jesus was bloodied but resolute and leaned into God as he continued to move toward the cross. His disciples, in contrast, man, what was happening here is everything they thought would happen. It's crumbling right before their eyes. No earthly kingdom. No power. No office in the temple of Jerusalem. So what do they do? One writer said they anesthetize themselves or numb themselves from the pain by going to sleep. Now, I, I know that some of you think when I get anxious like that, I'm in pain, I can't sleep. But I know there's a lot of you like me. When I'm in pain, Jenna says, when I'm anxious, where are you going? I said, I'm just going to sleep. I just go to sleep. It just makes me tired. I can forget it. Dream about millions of dollars dropping through the chimney. Jesus had leaned in and depended upon God via prayer to give him the strength to persevere in faithfulness. The disciples, in contrast, they had not prayed. They were self-reliant. Therefore, they had no strength to persevere and to live faithfully. I want to say to us, one of the greatest virtues in all the scriptures is faithfulness. Not celebrity, not fast growth, not some new offshoot of Christianity. It's a steady, we put it here at fellowship like this, a long obedience in the same direction. It's three steps forward, it's two steps back. It's three steps forward, it's two steps back. It's three steps forward, it's two steps back. It didn't look spectacular, but man, that's how you live the Christian life. And what happens is after years and years and years and years of steady faithfulness, it's the old rabbit, right, hare, and it's the turtle. You look at these cats who've been living unfaithfully, but they're the cool thing. They're the rabbit. They don't cross the finish line. They get distracted. But you look at these old spiritual turtles. Steady, faithful, and here's what happens in your heart. You look back and you go, I really have changed. I am not the person I was. Yeah, I still got issues. I still got a lot of faithfulness to go, but I'll tell you what. My heart's different. I think different. I think about God different. I think about myself different. I think about my wife different. I think about others different. I think about non-Christians different. Faithfulness. Faithfulness requires exertion toward God in prayer. If you are prayerless, like I have been in seasons, I got more Peter in me than anybody in this church, Okay? I'm your poster child for Peter. Monty knows it. I've drove him crazy with it. But I'm not the same as I used to be. 
suffering, and pain, and the heat being turned up has driven me to lean in to God. Dr. Bach says he prepared himself by turning to God. Some of us walk around the Christian life with no preparation. I'll go back to the football example. <laughs> you prepare year-long to play one season. If you don't prepare, you pull your hamstring on day one. <laughs> There's something about being prepared spiritually. We move to our second point here. This is the kiss of death, verses 47 through 53. Read with me. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas... Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched the ear and it healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out? As against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour. This is your hour and the power of darkness. So while Jesus is still speaking to his disciples about their lack of prayer, about them sleeping instead of praying, the crowd arrives to arrest Jesus. The text tells us their leader was Judas himself. Again, it is past midnight. We got to remember earlier in the evening, Jesus had dismissed Judas from the upper room. He looked at him and said, go do your thing. It's your time. I know what you're going to do. It's all in God's plan. And Judas had gone and closed the deal with the devil. He has collected his bag of money. And he told the religious leader where Jesus stayed every night, which was in the Mount of Olives. Judas is possessed by Satan and obsessed by greed. And yet, unbeknownst to him, he serves God's divine purposes. He cannot and does not grasp that he is on God's clock, period. The Jewish leaders now go and tell Pilate, we have an insurrectionist in our midst. Remember, remember Pilate, just four days ago, there were 200,000 plus people screaming his name. This is the king of Israel. He's a threat to peace. He's a competitor to Caesar. He needs to be arrested. So they talk Pilate into that. Soldiers get together. And they grabbed the Sadducees, or the Sadducees grabbed them. They ran the temple business. The temple police were there who protected the temple during the day and night. The Sanhedrin, it says, the 70 elders or leaders of Israel were there. Mark 14 tells us there were scribes there. And John 18 says the Pharisees were there as well, along with a Roman co-art. Now, what is a co-art? A co-art is one-tenth of a legion. 
a legion of Roman soldiers or 6,000 soldiers. So here we have a cohort which are 600. So now we have nearly 1,000 people that have showed up <laughs> to arrest Jesus in the darkness, in the private of the Mount of Olives. The crowd came with lanterns and clubs and swords. How many of you have seen the movie, The Beauty and the Beast? Raise your hand. How many of you have seen it more times than because of your kids than you've wanted to see it? Amen to that. There's a song that they sang. It's titled The Mob Song in The Beauty and the Beast. Remember that? When they had gathered to go and arrest and kill the beast. We're not safe until he's dead. He'll wreak havoc on our village if we let him wander free. So it's time to take some action, boys. That's what's happening here. Instead of welcoming, welcoming the long-awaited Son of God who was the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, they send a group of vigilantes and soldiers to capture him in order to murder him, Jesus. Verses 47 through 48, it's dark. No one could tell who Judas was in the dark. They didn't have some kind of identification. So Judas identifies him with a kiss, the kiss of death. The writer of the Proverbs tells us the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. There, there are no truer words speaking of this scene in the Bible than that Proverbs 27, 6. Here's what's interesting. If you go back and read John 18, one of our parallel passages in John 18, 6, Jesus asks, whom are you seeking? They respond to him. Now, Jesus steps forward. Judas kisses him. Jesus steps forward and said, who are you looking for? They respond, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus steps forward and says, I am he. You go read that passage. It says they all fell down and were fell backwards. Jesus used the phrase, I am that I am. And the authority just coming from his mouth, the authority and power of God coming from his breath knocked nearly a thousand people down. Jesus had the power to snap his fingers and legions of angels come and destroy them. Jesus had the power to speak and fire burn them right in the mist. Just the power from him saying, I am, knocked him to the ground. And I don't know about you, but if I'm about to seize somebody, I'm about to put my hands on a dude out on the street, and I say, what's your name? And he says, he just names his name, and it knocks me down. I'm like, peace out, brother. <laughs> like, we're not getting into it. I'm like, you win. And I'm going home telling my wife, man, I just about got killed today. I stop immediately. Anybody else going to fight that guy? Lonnie? If Lonnie won't fight him, nobody will. Man, they were so blind and so hard-hearted. Matthew 26 says immediately they seized him. At that moment, the disciples knew their gig was up. Verse 49, 
Their collective response was, shall we strike with a sword? Peter's answer is yes, which shows us that a professional fisherman is a terrible swordsman because he tried to decapitate the high priest slave. I think his name was Malchus. And he missed, cut his ear off. Jesus immediately heals the slave's ear just for trivial purposes. It was Jesus' last miracle before maybe the resurrection could have been last, but before the resurrection. In verse 52, he asked the chief priests, temple officers and Jewish leaders who could have done this any day at any time, you could have done this any day at any time I was teaching daily in the town, but do your thing. This is your hour. My Father has ordained this hour before the creation of the world. It is time. It's your hour. It's been given to you by me. It's been given to you by my Father. Go ahead and do your thing. Matthew 26, 56, Jesus tells them, all this is taking place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then the text tells us, the disciples left and fled, fulfilling a direct prophecy from Zechariah 13, 7 that says, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be shattered or scattered. The disciples had failed to prepare through prayer, and now the results we see, they have now left and abandoned the one who had found them. We get to the last part of our text, Peter's fleshly collapse, verse 54 through 62. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him, as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I'm not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is too Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. And old Peter, I love him. I know him because I know me. Peter can't stand it, can he? He follows the crowd to the houses of the high priest, Annas, and uh, Caiaphas, thank you. And in the courtyard below, Peter completely falls apart and denies that he even knows Jesus. Not once, not twice, 
but three times. Mark 14 tells us that the third person that asked him, do you know Jesus? You, 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 you talk funny. You talk like a Galilean. Peter begins to curse him out. Hmm. Now, if you're sitting there, like I have done in the past, looking with disdain at Peter for denying Christ, what you're missing is a valuable lesson, a valuable truth, a valuable principle of walking with Christ for a lifetime. And that is that Peter's story is your story. Peter's story is my story. We come into relationship with Christ. We love him. We are so grateful for his love for us. It's even hard to believe. Like, really? It seems too good to be true because most things that seem too, be good, too good to be true actually are. But we, we know it is that we're loved by the God of the universe through his son in Christ. But then every one of us in our journey of following Christ also have a spiritual collapse, a fleshly spiritual collapse like Peter. And we have them more than we think. Tim Keller puts it this way. This is sobering. Every sin is a kind of practical atheism. It is acting as if God is not there, as if God does not exist. And isn't that what Peter did this morning or that evening? Peter acted as if he didn't know Jesus. One writer said this is a classic case of spiritual overconfidence. It is the warning Paul gave to the church at 1 Corinthians in verses, chapter 10, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take a heed lest he fall. Now, you remember Jesus had just told Peter in our previous text, in verses 31 through 34, Brother, you better get your heart right because it's coming. Brother, persecution is coming. Brother, Satan is coming. Peter said, and I'm paraphrasing, man, they may come, bring it on. I'm good. I'm ready. Let me tell you something, Jesus. I'll go to jail with you. I'll die for you. I got you back. I'm Peter. Peter placed his trust in himself. Because Peter's trust was in himself. When it came to pray, he did not lean in toward God. What did he do? He slept. I want to pause and tell us this morning, your emotional love for Jesus cannot and will not protect you from a fleshly spiritual collapse. I want to tell you this morning that your Close proximity and my close proximity to church and church folk will not protect you from a fleshly spiritual collapse. If you're faking it, it will show itself. The only chance you and I have is a daily, fresh, moment-by-moment life of leaning hard into Christ through prayer, his word, and transparency with other believers, while at the same time keeping very short accounts with God and others. The old country preacher said to confess them things as you does them things. 
as with any person's fleshly spiritual collapse. When you hear about it, here's what you can know with certainty. That is, if you were able to see their life, you could trace the spiritual collapse back with this long tail that would show you an end up of a place in their life where they detached spiritually and relied on themselves, and it all started to unravel. Peter's collapse was at a breakneck pace. Within a few hours, he had gone from protecting Jesus with a sword to denying that he even knew him. Game's up, Peter. Cock crows. What happens next is phenomenal. Verse 61, maybe the most compelling sentence in all these verses. It says, the Lord looked at Peter. Man. I'm assuming because of what the scriptures say at that time, Jesus' face is probably swollen from being beaten. He's been spit all over. Ain't no doubt Jesus was sad. Ain't no doubt he was disappointed. But he knew it was going to happen. He had predicted it was going to happen. He had prophesied it was going to happen. But this look also had the look of, of love to it as he stared Peter in the eyes. This look that reminded Peter, Peter, I chose you. You didn't choose me. Peter, I told you in verse 32 that your faith, you'd be sifted, you'd fall, you'd stumble, you'd bloody your knee, you'd break your nose. But your faith will not fail. I told you you would be a leader in my church. I told you that I am faithful when you are faithless. Peter, I love you. I'm with you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be your Lord for the rest of your life. And you are going to be a great leader in the church. Man, the pain Peter felt was beyond description, the text tells us. And he went out and he wept bitterly, as he should have. When we love Christ and we have a fleshly spiritual collapse, genuine tears of repentance are a beautiful sign that you actually know Christ. They're a beautiful sign that he actually lives in you. And I've been there. I asked you this morning, when's the last time you wept over your sin? Not just your sin, but your sin against such a great Savior, Christ. If it's been a long time or never have, this is examination time for your heart spiritually. Seems like the end, but it's not for Peter. John 21, after the resurrection of Christ... It's the beginning of the restoration for Peter. Jesus and Peter meet on a beach. <laughs> Peter's talking to the resurrected Christ. And Jesus asked him three questions. Do you love me? Peter said, yes. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Do you love me? 
Yes, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. Scholars throughout Christianity have said Jesus asked him those three questions to go along with those three denials. I got you. Peter was a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus until he took his last breath. They said, Peter, we're going to crucify you just like Jesus was crucified, your so-called Lord. If you don't start stop preaching about this risen Christ, Peter said, I'm not going to stop preaching. And you're not going to crucify me like you did him. I'm not worthy of it. You kill me, that's fine. But you crucify me upside down. I have one request. I am not worthy to die like my Lord. Oh, I remind us this morning, the gospel is good news for sinners. If the Lord did not use people who fell, <laughs> he wouldn't use anyone. Not anyone. So I come to you this morning, and there's a lot there. There's themes of dependence and obedience and leaning hard into God and prayer and failure. Take one of those or several of those and ask yourself the question, so what? Take a minute to do just that. Stand with me this morning, if you would. Lord Jesus, we uh, pause in our hearts. And, man, we, we love your word, Lord. We're so grateful for your word. Your word sharpens us, matures us, encourages us. It also convicts, convicts us, brings correction. Uh, we cannot be your people without your word. So we're grateful for this text this morning. Help us to apply it uh, deliberately and intentionally to our own lives. Help us to tell the truth. Help us to lean hard into you, to depend upon you, to obey you, to not sleep spiritually speaking. Protect us from spiritual collapses. And Lord, we are grateful 
that you are faithful even though we are faithless. We love you. We're grateful. And everyone said, Amen.